0: It just means there's only so much time there's only so many things we can do we can only change so many things at once and so staying really focused on what are the problems we're trying to solve and going down that path has been very helpful about you know to try and keep everyone
1: focused welcome to the disruptive innovators champions of digital business podcast where it and digital leaders from around the world talk about their careers their inspiration And their vision for the future, personally, professionally, and otherwise. This podcast is made for people who are seeing how quickly the digital business landscape is evolving. Those who recognize that it takes a village of trusted advisors to navigate this ever-changing terrain. People who enjoy listening to high-level discussions surrounding what it means to be a leader, real-world examples of challenges faced, and industry-specific strategies leveraged to create exceptional business outcomes.
0: This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.
1: Good afternoon, everyone. This is David Wright, and I'm your host of the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. And this afternoon, I'm joined by Dr. Stephanie Lair. How's it going, Stephanie?
0: Hi there. Great. Happy to be here.
1: Excellent. So, to start out, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about your, your current role.
0: Sure. So, um, I'm an internal medicine physician by background and training, but I spend all of my time these days. At what I would call the intersection of technology and clinical care delivery, I am the CIO and CMIO at Monument Health. So we're a not-for-profit healthcare system based in Western South Dakota, serving some of Eastern Wyoming and Northern Nebraska. So probably inherent in that description is, is a relatively rural geography to be serving, which provides some opportunities and challenges as we provide care in our area. And, and it's a piece that's very close to me. I Grew up in those kinds of areas. I grew up on a cattle ranch in Montana. and so it's very relevant personally for me to be able to lead and bring really innovative and contemporary solutions to rural America because it you know doesn't all have to happen in big cities. So been here six years, came here as the CMIO at the time of a EHR transition, and then in 2018 took over the combined role of CIO and CMIO. At the time, it was thought that, you know, a clinician leading the the technology teams could really help translate where we needed to go and put our strategy into application. And so fortunately, I have a really awesome team and that's worked out well. I've grown and learned a lot in those last couple of years.
1: Yeah. I mean, we're seeing more and more success with classical physicians kind of stepping into that role of CIO with their background and clinical and operational workflows and all that being so relevant to, you know, creating this revolutionized patient experience. Right. So that's very cool. Um, we like to start out the, the episode with one piece of actionable advice you could look to give our listeners today.
0: Yeah. I think from a practical everyday, whether it's in your, in a role as becoming a leader or in your own personal life and family, I think reflection is key. Reflection and growth. We all have an opportunity to look back on things that we have done and grow and learn from them and move forward in better directions. And I think keeping a real focus on that and actually having even time set aside in your schedule somewhere during the week for reflection, learning, and growth can really be powerful. As I look at some of the the poignant elements or poignant transitions in my career, most of them came from doing some deep reflection on where things were going and what was happening and either things I needed to double down on or things I needed to change.
1: That is great advice. It reminds me of uh, some additional advice we had gotten from a, a previous guest about that I actually really gave some careful thought to about having people that'll call you on your stuff too in your life, right? You know, so Doing that reflection. And then for me, you know, sometimes I can't even see my own blind spots. So being able to have that person who's going to really hold me up my highest, I think is also crucial for me.
0: Absolutely. Great additional,
1: Yeah, thanks. You got me thinking. You got the wheels turning. Let's, you know, take it back. I want to understand kind of where you started. I know you were at Meditech at one point, right? And you're a physician by trade. I mean, you have a really interesting background. So I'd love to learn more about how you. How you started, we've had guests go as far back as as they want. So wherever you want to kind of start your story, just how did you get to where you are today?
0: Yeah, sure. So probably what I would go back to was my medical school and residency training. So I trained in Texas in the kind of early 2000s. EMR was just burgeoning more so in bigger, larger centers. Community hospitals were still doing a lot of point, you know, based systems. So while I was in training, we transitioned really from paper to we happened to go up with Epic and the brands are the brands right. There's Epic, there's Meditech, there's Cerner, there's all kinds of stuff out there. There's the good, the bad, and the ugly of all of them. But that was just my reality at the time. Was we went live with Epic. Interestingly, that was at a time when we would did ambulatory first and then inpatient, and so we went through that process. And about I don't know seven or eight months later. We had a hurricane, and that happens in Galveston not infrequently, but it was one of the more devastating uh, hurricanes there, probably since the 1900 storm. And I personally had five feet of water in my house. The entire island was evacuated for quite some time. We didn't have power, we didn't have running water for several weeks to months on the island. And the university itself really was forced to sort of close a lot of its primary clinics and business, and even the hospital was kind of sort of closed for a bit. And what was very interesting was just a couple of weeks after that hurricane, when we were all still floundering for where are we going to live and what's going to happen, we were able to, in a strip mall about 20 miles up the road, open up a clinic. We were seeing some people in person. We were also doing sort of old school telemedicine, which was basically talking to people on the phone and. Amazingly, I had access to their charts. I could e-prescribe medication. I could communicate with other members of the care team and really have an understanding of what was going on and how to help these people, which was even more important than usual because, of course, all of these people now were impacted by a devastating hurricane and at the same time trying to manage their complex health issues. So it was kind of an epiphany for me of like, okay, wow. I mean, I never really thought paper was that bad, but imagine literally all of those papers and old charts were underwater 20 miles away. And if we had still been dependent on those records, we wouldn't have been able to do any of those things that I just mentioned. And so for me, it was a really you know, transformational moment in my thinking around, this is where we're going. No, these systems aren't fabulous. It's not the be all end all of everything. Do I like spending all my time writing notes and doing those things? No, it probably could be optimized but I definitely don't see a way backwards. We've got to keep pushing this. And so when I went into private practice as a hospitalist, I actually was I was interviewing at a, a hospital in, in Coeur d'Alene where I ended up going, and they were a Meditech hospital. And I didn't know any of the lay of the land of the brands and the, you know, the nuances of who would have what. So I just asked when I was meeting with their CEO, do you by chance use Epic? Or I don't know, maybe there's other ones. I had really had no idea. And he... Kind of looked at me with this big stare and he said, are you a doctor that's asking me about EHR? And I kind of get the feeling like you want to use it. And I said, yeah, I mean, it just seems like this is where we have to go. And he was like, wow. Okay. Yes. I, we agree, but we don't have anyone else who thinks like that. If you come here, boy, we would really love for you to work with our teams. And so that's what I did. I started working as a hospitalist full time and just on the side worked with the technology teams to provide advice around, hey, do we think we could change this or the other system I used did this, is that a possibility? And and then we were going through an upgrade to a newer Meditech platform at the time and so I got really involved in that on the clinical side of sort of again trying to make sure that our clinicians' views were being represented and that the clinical needs and workflows were represented and not oversimplified because that's really one of the big challenges you know with the systems is if you take them live without the right input and background knowledge you tend to oversimplify really complex workflows and that's why people suddenly feel like everything is broken is they're like well it doesn't really work like that in real life it's not as black and white and so that got me involved both from the standpoint of the healthcare organization but then doing some work with Meditech on the side as well kind of working with them as a CMIO for hire, so to speak, where I would go to organizations that were maybe struggling, maybe they didn't have a CMIO or a physician champion to really help dig into some of those things. And I'd go in for a day or two and just kind of work with operations and talk about, well, what are the challenges? And okay, yep, that may be something on the technology side that could be improved or gosh, that's a decision you guys made. And while pharmacy may think it should work like this, the doctors think it should work like this. And now you guys... Don't, you know, you're in opposition. That's something you guys have to work through. The technology can't do that for you. And so, you know, that just sort of started to grow. And I really, really enjoyed kind of being in the middle of those things and watching things get better and really work toward those improvements, such to a point that, you know, I I started looking at my career and saying, well, you know, I love clinical medicine, but I love this other area and I don't see a lot of other people like me doing it. I feel like this is an area that I I need to keep pushing on. And so I got board certified in clinical informatics and, you know, I kind of on that reflection, continuous learning sort of perspective, I felt like, you know, I I had some things I needed to learn about. And so I went out and got some more education and then really sort of slowly over the course of 10 years went from working full-time as a hospitalist to working full-time as a hospitalist and full-time as an informaticist. That's not sustainable for very long and then go, slowly going the other direction and backing off on my clinical and staying more um, on the IT and informatics side. And and now I don't practice anymore. But I see you know, people ask, oh gosh, is that hard? Is that, you know, do you miss that part? And there are absolutely elements of it that I miss. But I think one of the awesome things is that I still use a lot of that clinical knowledge all the time as we work through solving the problems. I mean, to your point about you know, this transition we're seeing and having clinicians do some of this leadership. The reality is the integration of technology into the workflows is so highly embedded and needs to get even further embedded that understanding and speaking that language and knowing some of the potential gotcha points I think is gonna be key. It doesn't mean you have to be a clinician to be in those roles by any means, but it certainly means you either need to have an appreciation for that, or the skill set yourself, and then surround yourself with all the right people who can provide, you know, fill those gaps. Just like I surround myself with people now who are super strong on the technology and infrastructure side and things like that. So that's kind of, you know, been the metamorphosis over time. And it, it all just started with a hurricane.
1: Wow, that's wild. I think for a long time, some of the business leaders on the medical side, you know, maybe they didn't want to get involved with IT too much. And I, this is, dating things a little bit. And IT kind of operated in the silo. Maybe there was some technology innovation that would happen between the two, but it was very separate. And now you're seeing that merger and like you're, you're kind of at the, the precipice of it. I mean, and we're seeing that, like I said, more and more. I mean, amazing story. So I want to ask, what's one of the most important things that you've learned along your journey? And what was life like before learning it? and what was life like after learning it?
0: I think it was easy for me, kind of coming into this, to think technology is not that hard. Like, why does this have to be so complicated? My, my clinical brain said the hard part is the clinical stuff. The technology should be easy, and and of course we've lived that a lot because Apple makes it look super easy, and Google makes it look super easy, and Amazon makes it look super easy, and these. Companies become more a part of our everyday life and the tools that they use. It is easier and easier for us to have this mindset of, I don't know, it just works. It's super easy. And not really have an appreciation that, first of all, even for those companies, there's thousands of people sitting behind what is today easy, which wouldn't be without a lot of effort, hours, investment. And that the reality is, to an extent, in healthcare, some of the things that we're working against um, make it not an apples to apples comparison. And some of the technology we're having to work through, it's a little more complicated than I really appreciated. And so I also think that it was easy because for those silos that you mentioned, it created, I think, a perspective by clinicians that IT was kind of our opponent, right? Like you keep bringing me these things I don't want and that I don't like and don't make my life any easier. And I want you to just stop doing that. And so I don't really want to work with you. I just want you to go away. And I I think we've crossed that bridge for the most part. There's a bit of a glimmer now of, hey, the tools that we're bringing forward, we actually might be getting to a point where we can make people's lives better and easier all around the continuum of the healthcare circle. But for a while, you know, again, it, it was easier to just sort of suggest that if the technology could just fix itself, you know, this would all be fine. And that's really not the case. You know, I mean, really, it comes down to one, the technology does have to get better and is getting better. But then the other piece of this is, you know, people, process, and technology, every, it's, it's a mantra that a lot of people say, but it is so, so poignantly true. And the people and process tends to be 70 to 80%, if not at times more, and the technology is 20%. And so once I, you know, was able to get some of those project management and other kinds of skills in place, in addition to the clinical knowledge that I had, it was really a lot less about the technology and more understanding people and process. And my primary mantra to everyone in my organization, whether we're talking about technology or even if I'm sitting in senior executive team and we're talking about you know, bringing on a new specialty, the question I always ask is, what problem are we trying to solve? Because it's super easy to go down a whole bunch of paths for reasons that you don't even understand at the moment why you're getting pulled down them. And, and if we can always come back to, what problem are we trying to solve? you can ground yourself. So that's kind of a couple of things encapsulated. I guess one is an appreciation for the technology is honestly a little more complex and you know our expectations have to be managed. Two, people in process is as big a part, if not a bigger part than the technology itself. And so we kind of have to make sure that we focus on that. And then that third part is, if you can come back to what's the problem you're trying to solve, I think all of those earlier pieces solve themselves, because sometimes it will be technology, lots of times, it's going to be people in process, sometimes it may be a combination of all three. But I think once I got to that point of not looking at the technology as the separate thing, but more one of potential 10 different options to solving a problem, that has become critical to, you know, kind of the success and, and working my way through things as well as right now when there's thousands of things coming out on a daily basis being able to sort through what to look at and what not to if there's not a problem I'm trying to solve then I'm not looking at that solution today it doesn't mean it's not a great solution it just means there's only so much time there's only so many things we can do we can only change so many things at once and so staying really focused on what are the problems we're trying to solve and going down that path has been very helpful about, you know, to try and keep everyone focused.
1: I love that. I mean, and the organization's so lucky to have, you know, someone like you kind of, like I said before, kind of in the middle or I should say bridging those teams together. And, and really, what, from what I hear, like creating a culture of, you know, creating a progressive culture, I should say. It's really cool. And we're seeing organizations kind of go in that direction more and more, but it sounds like you guys are already kind of on your way there. And I mean, you said, you said so many other good things.
0: One part I might add is, you know, I think the, um, I think the culture of the organization is absolutely a critical element and it's something that I think as a a leader, it's really important to identify, are you in the organization with the right cultural fit? And, you know, as I give advice to people looking at different career moves and where they want to go and they're sort of thinking, well, I think I want this kind of a job or I think I want this kind of a role or go here. I work a lot with people to say, well, I mean, that's great, but who's the team you want to work with? Who are the people you at the end of the day are going to be at sometimes arm wrestling with a little bit and in other times high fiving and, you know congratulating, because it's going to be all of those things. And that team, I mean, I feel really lucky that from an executive leadership, from our CEO on down through the rest of our team, our senior executive and other executive team, there is that culture of, yes, we need to continue to learn and push. And we don't always all get to the same place at the same time. But I wouldn't be able to have this progressive pushing on things. It wouldn't be as successful as it is if I was the only one doing it, right? Because then actually, probably people would dislike me. <laughs> if the rest of the culture was, we're good with the way things are, and I'm like, hey, let's do this. What about this? Maybe we could creatively solve this problem in this way. That friction would play out in a lot of negative ways. And so I do think that while I feel really proud of what we've accomplished here and my teams are doing, it's in the setting of an environment of a leadership team that has really been forward thinking and realizing that, hey, there's nothing bad about the work that we've done in the past. It's how we got to where we are, but it's not the work that's going to carry us into the future. And so if we are going to make it successfully into the future and be the independent organization we want to be, we've got to all come together and progressively think things, think forward thinking and challenge each other.
1: Right, create that culture of innovation. In working with large health systems, it, it can be difficult to get there. I mean, there's a, there's a, lot, of, uh, a lot of barriers to that sometimes, especially the, the fear of failure, right? The fear of making the wrong decision, you know, but you have to create that, at least a, a small vacuum in which you can do that, right? And, and learn from it, incorporate feedback and, and keep going because otherwise you end up, you know, five years into a project, and you're you're not much farther along than when you started. So, what's one of the biggest disappointments or your biggest failures, either in your current role or previous roles, and what did you learn from that?
0: I would say um, a very kind of pivotal career moment for me, which was probably you know a failure that then I tried to turn into a success in a previous organization. Again, I was doing all these things. I was thinking progressively. I was working with the clinicians and really trying to charge ahead. But I had had some blinders on, I think, to the culture that was around me and if everyone else was as far along as I was. And what I didn't realize, and again, this kind of comes into that reflection and to your point, having people who can reflect for you and kind of help you gauge where you're at. What I didn't realize is I was creating friction for other people. And to a point that it, it really became a pretty significant issue that I had a brand new CIO and he came to me and said, gosh, the team seems to love you. You're doing a lot of great things here. But the senior leadership team suggested that maybe you don't belong in this organization. And that's, that's a moment when you're like, oh, wow, I mean, I thought I was doing all the right things. And clearly you're not, right? I mean, if anyone has that perception, it doesn't matter how passionate you are and how, I mean, true north you may think things are, something's gone wrong. And I I a really appreciated that that leader was willing to come to me and say, there's something going on here. But I understand that there's two sides to everything. And I'm new to this situation and I need time to assess. So I'm, we're not going to do anything right now. I just want to watch and learn, but I want to challenge you to think about what might be creating some of that. And I had to really think about, and, and really what I came to was I was a little bit too much of a good thing for some people. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, all the things I was pushing for were great, but maybe we weren't really ready for all of them. And maybe the way I was pushing on them was just a little too much. And so I was able to reframe and do some introspection and say, "Gosh, I maybe there's a different way to approach some of these conversations. Maybe there's a different way to get to the same end without having to disrupt, you know, relationships in this way." And really found a lot of success both in that organization, which I continued to stay at for another couple of years, and then as I've moved into other organizations and mentored people beneath me to you know i think there's a couple of key points in that one when you get to this level of senior leadership a lot of people that sit in the seats that are you know hierarchically lower than you people think oh gosh i mean if they were able to get to that point in their career it's probably like it probably all just kind of went their way like they know exactly what they're doing and they execute on it correctly every time that's how they got to be that person right it's it's, it's sort of easy to put somebody on a pedestal and think oh yeah i'm sure they they never say anything wrong or do anything wrong and that is just totally not true right we all have failures and things that have caused us to hopefully rethink and i think that's what gets that person to that level of leadership is that ability to reexamine and learn and grow and push beyond those failures and so one, I think it's important to share them because again, I think it can be common for people to think, you know, that that doesn't happen to people who are super successful And however you want to frame that. That's just not the case. You know, success comes with failure for sure. And again, it really drives back to that point of about self-reflection because I could have taken that feedback and said, well, that's their problem. I mean, if they don't like how I'm delivering the message, then then, you know, fine, that's their problem, not mine. And that doesn't usually seem like the right that's probably not if your brain is telling you, that's their problem. That's probably your ego (laughs) inside being defensive, and um, probably something you need to reflect on. And, and so those are pieces that I really try to continually think about is what is that voice in my head telling me and why? And there's a, a couple of great books, I don't know, Cy Wakeman I'm a huge Cy Wakeman fan, no ego, reality-based leadership. Several of her books are just fabulous, but really get into what's happening in our own minds and in the minds of the people who work for us that might be causing them to handle things in a certain way that really is more about going in and harnessing your inner ego and figuring out, gosh, you know, this. there's probably a different way to, to do this.
1: I love that. I mean, I kind of heard it before, but then when you started talking about ego, I knew that we were kind of getting into the emotional intelligence of leadership, which I really am a big fan of. So, but I've never heard of Cy Wakeman. So that was actually my next question before we got into kind of your vision for, um, for your current organization. I'm going to ask you about your favorite book. So any other uh, books or blogs you're reading right now that you're a big fan of?
0: So a good friend of mine that is a physician and leader, and this kind of goes to the, you know, being a woman in leadership roles. And it's just a little bit different than, you know, it's, it's kind of like anything else from a diversity standpoint. It's there's no good, bad or otherwise. There's just different experiences. And I think one of the things I really love to do is work with mentor and collaborate with other women, not because there's anything wrong with anyone else, but because it is a little bit different. And it's great to have that network amongst the other networks that I have that are, you know, diversified in different ways. And so Dr. Shilkut, she's a cardiac anesthesiologist. She has a great book called Between Grit and Grace. She's got a blog. And it's, you know, there's things in there that probably cross over gender and all different other kinds of things that make us unique individuals. But there's a lot of great content in there, I think, around the things, again, that our mind tells us your inner frenemy, imposter syndrome, things that, you know, that we all have to kind of work through and that you again underappreciate. You know, even when I hear her talk about it, I'm like, how is it possible she could have imposter syndrome, right? I mean, look at all that she's accomplished and look at all these things and the reality is it happens to everyone. And so I do love following along with her both cuz from the physician perspective as well as female leadership. So, that's probably be my other Oh, actually, one more. I love the How I Built This podcast. You know, it's not healthcare specific by any means. In fact, that's one of the things I love about it. But again, it gets to the grit of what it really takes to be successful. And you think about these companies that have done all these amazing things and the leaders that are in front of them. And it's so easy. I do it myself. I'm like, yeah. I mean, the guy who started, you know, whatever company or the woman who started whatever company it was, I mean, it probably just sort of fell in their lap. They probably have amazing luck. Things probably just went their way. And then you listen to these, you know, podcasts and you're like, they were like $2 away from bankruptcy. They like gave up their first house. All these different things happened to them. And again, I think it really helps keep you grounded in that idea of anything worth having is worth working hard for. And um, that we all have the ability to achieve more, but it's going to come with opportunities to really dig in and learn and take risks.
1: I love that. And I mean, you touched on the imposter syndrome, which you know really hits home for me. It's something that I, I struggle with on a regular basis. We've received a number of awards and significant year over year growth. And it doesn't matter. I, I wake up sometimes with this voice that tells me, you know, I'm not enough or whatever it might be. And for me, it's like it's a, my mindfulness practice is a daily reprieve. It's like I get to, you know, just breathe, make a gratitude list, you know, think about how many blessings I have in my life today, you know, have that perspective shift where it's like, oh, well, it's not even about me, you know, it's like, who can I help today?
0: And I think imposter syndrome, like anything else, can be leveraged for the positive as well. I mean. We also don't want to be overconfident and think that we are the be all end all to everyone and everything, right? So there's that fine line between, gosh, there's no way I am good enough for that. I'm amazing. Like, I can do no wrong, right? Like, those are not, you you don't want to be on either of those ends of the spectrum. And so, you know, imposter syndrome in the right dose can help keep you grounded. And well, no, I mean, it's probably not that extreme, but there is room for improvement there's always room for improvement and growth and that little bit in your mind that's pushing you to say, well, gosh, did I do everything I could have done? If you can harness it the right way, you can turn it into motivation. But I think it's understanding what it is when it's happening to you and not letting it take you down a negative path, but trying to turn it into something that's motivational.
1: 100%. Thank you for that, Stephanie. I mean, that was, that was all great stuff. So let's dive into you know, so your app at- Monument Health, you're the CIO and CMIO. What's your vision for the organization and and what are some of the key initiatives that you're focused on?
0: My real mantra right now is that we've got to reduce the friction and bring the joy back to medicine. When I say bring the joy back to medicine, I don't mean for just physicians or any particular group. I mean the practice of medicine as a team sport is is devastatingly depressed right now. The level of burnout is practically, you know, a pandemic of its own and we are seeing people leave the workforce in healthcare at rates that are even greater than we're seeing in other industries. And in my mind, technology has an opportunity to be that solution that can help drive back that joy. And because I think in some cases, and in many cases, a lot of that burnout is related to administrative and other kinds of burdens that we just, as clinicians, can't handle anymore. But the reality is, it's an interesting juxtaposition. We need to be data-driven. We need to progress and use information that is As up to date as possible, that is even precision and personalized for the individual. There's no way to accomplish that without having huge volumes of data points available to analyze and learn from. The problem is, we've done that all on the backs of our clinicians. And so, what we have to do, and I think technology is in a great place right now to do it with AI and machine learning tools is we have to find a way to capture all of that data while people are doing the work that they want to do. While I am caring for a patient, while I am talking with a patient, while I am examining a patient, while I am doing the tests on the patient, all of that information needs to be able to be harnessed without me having to go back into a system and put it there. And so, you know, there are simple, like easy things that, you know, that you can think of from a low hanging fruit kind of friction points. Even when we think about, you know, something happens, it's somebody's job to see that it happened and call someone else to tell them, hey, this happened, you should do this part now. Why wouldn't we use technology? Why wouldn't we use computer vision or other tools to say, this just happened, every time this happens, this Next next level thing should occur. This next level person should be notified. Automate that. We don't why should the person have to do it? Right. There's things as, as minimal as that to as complex as looking and mapping out entire workflows, leveraging technology to capture that information and being able to really identify where are our work stoppage points? Where are we seeing that we're not very efficient? Where are we seeing redundancies and challenges? And then going in and solving those right problems because I think a lot of the times in healthcare, the problem that we have is we have all of this data, but we haven't turned it into information and learning to a degree of fidelity that really allows us to say, no, for sure, this is the problem. So we just end up kind of throwing darts and saying, I think this is the problem. What I know is that we're, oh, our throughput isn't where we want it to be. So it's probably this. I mean, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. And we don't have all the data points to understand that. Um, documentation, you know, again, nurses, physicians, physical therapists, case managers, anybody you talk about that has contact with the patient and then has relevant information from that interaction that needs to go into the record system for you know not only billing and charting purposes but also again hopefully to leverage that information on a bigger platform to be able to improve the care over time much of that documentation could be captured ambiently right if we're talking with patients let's capture that information and get it into the record without me having to go back and put it back in same you know across all of those different areas and so Right now, my goal, and especially you know given the the concerns that we're seeing from a workforce perspective, we need every person in the organization that's here today to stay and be happy doing their role. And we need to recruit and excite some people about coming to work for us and make that job that a job that they want to do. And so for me, right now, it's let's figure out what we can do with technology so that we can take the stuff that people don't want to do, and that's causing them to feel frustrated and burnt out. Or as we ask, you know, roles that three people used to do that now we only have one person left to be able to do. Great. How do we give them the most complex and human requiring elements of that and take some of the more mundane and get rid of it and offload it in other areas using automation, AI, machine learning, you know, all of those different kinds of things. So we've got a whole, a number of different projects that we're working on spanning lots of different clinical areas to really look at that. And they're going to take some time. These aren't tools that you just turn on and the next day everything's fixed, but we're really setting the stage for being able to be that learning organization. And in order to do that, we have to create additional inputs of of highly accurate and tiny lots and thousands and thousands of data points to really be able to learn from.
1: Yeah, and integrate those systems together 100%. That's very cool. I remembered what I was going to say before about, I mean, because you brought up like salt really focusing on the challenges that, you know, your system or other systems are facing. And then for us, really measuring that impact, you know, deducing whether technology could solve for the challenge or not, and then backing into how technology can serve to solve for that and then measuring the the impact that could have for the organization, operationally, financially, or otherwise. So what are some of the biggest challenges that you're facing right now in trying to make all of this happen?
0: Well, I mean, I think even workforce um, as both the thing that we're trying to solve for, it's also a challenge, right? I mean, it's, I have a fabulous team and I feel really lucky that from a turnover perspective, I don't have a lot of people leaving my teams, but I don't take any of that for granted. We certainly do have some, and it gets so it gets harder and harder to be able to deliver on some of these things because when somebody does leave, it's twice as hard to to find somebody to come in and fill that person's shoes. It's one of those elements too of I think we're really trying to understand making sure you know, I mentioned what problem are we trying to solve, but then also identifying is it the right Problem to solve, and kind of what I mean by that is, as we're examining problems to solve, there's another great book um, I've read called Upstream. The main title is Upstream. I can't. There's a, a sort of subtitle to it, and it's a, it's healthcare specific. And I have told this story. The the book starts out. With the story that maybe people have heard, which is two people are, are walking down by a river and they see a child in the river, and somebody runs in and they get the child out of the river. And oh, good, we saved that kid. Thank goodness, everything's fine. And then, oh my gosh, there was another kid in the river. And so, you know, they run in and, and save that kid too. And so this kind of now starts to continue to happen. And there's five, six, seven kids. So they're back and forth running and trying to save these children. And then at one point, one of the two people, like, takes off running. And the other guy says, wait, what are you doing? We've got to save these kids and says, well, I'm, I'm going upstream to find out who the heck is throwing these kids in the river so I can stop them. Right. Cause the real problem isn't that we need to get the kids out of the water. The real problem is something upstream of that. And I think in healthcare, we, even when we're focused on solving a problem, we sometimes are focused on solving a very downstream problem. and." So that's another piece that organizationally we're really trying to create some focus around is what's the upstream solution to that problem? And is that something we can tackle? It may mean that you have to tackle the downstream while you're tackling the upstream. But the reality is, if you don't tackle the upstream, you're never going to get away from tackling the downstream. That, I think, too, has become a real focus for us, especially as resources are limited and the. The whole landscape of healthcare delivery is changing, is thinking about things from the perspective of what's the problem and is it the right problem? And is there something further upstream from that that we should be thinking about?
1: I love that. I mean, I I like how you said upstream organizationally. I had never heard that parable before, but you have the upstream organizationally and then the upstream in healthcare in general, which kind of leads into some of the final questions I have for you, Steph, which are. You know, where do you see the healthcare industry going in general? What do you think will be some of the biggest changes as time passes?
0: This is such a tricky question right now cuz things are moving so fast that it's actually I think a little bit hard to even forecast. You know, I think we're going to see and we're seeing it right now, we're seeing consolidation of health systems. We're seeing um unification of interesting partnerships uh, between the sort of vendor side and the healthcare delivery side i think what's going to happen is i feel like it's we're sort of it's a pendulum swinging and some of those things that are happening are going to stick but some of it i think we're going to find maybe just isn't going to be as effective as we thought i'm really watching closely you know sort of these mega mergers and trying to figure out what we all learn from them, I understand sort of the, the premise of trying to create efficiencies and create standard work and that the idea of being, you know, if you're doing that with more, but to the point that you made earlier, the bigger you are, the harder it is to influence change because there's so many more people and so many people with their own, you know, silo and their own special case that they're trying to defend. So I think that what we're going to continue to see things go both ways. I think we're going to see mergers. I think we're going to see breakups. I think we're going to see healthcare provider companies get more involved um, with the sort of innovation side of the technology. I think a lot of the technology that needs to come to bear really needs incubation in, um, in a healthcare delivery system to really, again, to solve the problems. Because from the outside looking in, you just don't have the depth of information that's needed to really hone those tools. And so I think we're going to see more of that where industry and healthcare providers are coming together to solve those problems and hopefully both financially seeing something positive out of it, which may give healthcare systems an opportunity to sort of diversify their revenue in a different way beyond just that which they're getting from the traditional care delivery, and/or if you happen to be, you know, a, an insurance provider. Those are, are probably a couple of things that I definitely think that we are going that automation and opportunities for AI and machine learning and those kinds of things are going to become much more commonplace throughout all of our, our healthcare delivery systems. We're just going to have to because there just aren't the people. To do it. And so I'm excited to see that part because I think some really cool and transformative things are going to come out of it.
1: Agreed. And like you said before, I mean, it's all about the data, right? So, Stephanie, to close it out, I'd like to ask you if you could go back five or 10 years in time or more, what advice would you give your younger self?
0: You know, this may be sort of commonplace, but I think that it's probably two elements. One is, don't be too hard on yourself. You want to learn and you want to grow, but we all are going to make mistakes. And so constantly beating yourself up about little things that may or not have gone right or wrong, you'll reflect on later and saying, I don't know why I gave that so much time and attention. It wasn't worth it. But I also think that I would say, don't be so sure that the path that you think you're on is the path that, you're, that you need to be on and that you're going to stay on. If somebody had told me when I was in medical school that someday I would be leading IT teams, I would have said, that's crazy talk. I have no intention of doing that. I would have no desire to do that. It doesn't, I don't even know why a doctor would do that. It doesn't make any sense. And so, you know, that my path has changed a lot. And I think only that has only happened because of an open-mindedness to saying, well, I mean, yeah, this is the typical path for a physician, but it doesn't have to be my path. And so I think we have to put ourselves on paths because we create goals and that's how you sort of hold yourself accountable and get to the next step. But once in a while, you're going to potentially change paths. And neither is wrong. Somebody who goes to medical school and goes to residency and becomes an amazing clinician and does that their entire career, I love that. Those are good friends of mine. And We want lots of our clinic. We need most of our clinicians to do that. We don't need most of our clinicians to work in IT, just like we don't need most of our technologists to go back and become nurses. But we might find that there are some people who want to do those things. And I think that, again, it's good to have goals and set things out. But you have to constantly reevaluate that and not be afraid that if the path that you think you might want to go down is a little bit uncharted and non-traditional, that it's a reason not to do it.
1: Great <laughs> advice. Dr. Stephanie Lair, thank you so much for being on the podcast this afternoon. It was a, a truly a pleasure to have you on.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been fun.
1: And thank you all for tuning in. We'll catch you next week on Disruptive Innovators. Have a great afternoon. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes.
0: This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.